Edith Swanneck. Two journalists stayed behind, however, and the colonel joined them after attending to Edith and handing her over to the maids. Three of them, together with the detectives, made a search that did not lead to the discovery of anything of the least interest. Then the colonel sent for some champagne, and the result was that it was not until a late hour, to be exact a quarter to three in the morning, that the journalists took their leave, the colonel retired to his quarters, and the detectives withdrew to the room which had been set aside for them on the ground floor. They took the watch by turns, a watch consisting in the first place in keeping awake, and next in looking round the garden and visiting the gallery at intervals. These orders were scrupulously carried out, except between five and seven in the morning, when sleep gained the mastery, the men ceased to go their round. But it was broad daylight out of doors. Besides, if there had been the least sound of bells, would they not have woken up? Nevertheless, when one of them at twenty minutes past seven opened the door of the gallery and flung back the shutters, he saw that the twelve tapestries were gone. This man and the others were blamed afterward for not giving the alarm at once and for starting their own investigations before informing the colonel and telephoning the local commissary. Yet this very excusable delay can hardly be said to have hampered the action of the police. In any case, the colonel was not told until half-past eight. He was dressed and ready to go out. The news did not seem to upset him beyond measure, or at least he managed to control his emotion. But the effort must have been too much for him, for he suddenly dropped into a chair and for some moments gave way to a regular fit of despair and anguish, most painful to behold in a man of his resolute appearance. Recovering and mastering himself, he went to the gallery, stared at the bare walls, and then sat down at a table and hastily scribbled a letter, which he put into an envelope and sealed. There, he said, I'm in a hurry. I have an important engagement. Here's a letter for the commissary of police. And seeing the detective's eyes upon him, he added, I am giving the commissary my views, telling him of a suspicion that occurs to me. He must follow it up. I will do what I can. He left the house at a run with excited gestures which the detectives were subsequently to remember. A few minutes later, the commissary of police arrived. He was handed the letter, which contained the following words. I am at the end of my tether. Theft of those tapestries completes the crash which I have been trying to conceal for the past year. I bought them as a speculation and was hoping to get a million francs for them, thanks to the fuss that was made about them. It was, an American offered me 600,000. It meant my salvation. This means utter destruction. I hope that my dear wife will forgive the sorrow which I am bringing upon her. Her name will be on my lips at the last moment. Madame Sparmiento was informed. She remained aghast with terror, while inquiries were instituted and attempts made to trace the colonel's movements. Late in the afternoon, a telephone message came from Ville d'Avray. A gang of railway men had found a man's body lying at the entrance to a tunnel after a train had passed. The body was hideously mutilated, 
The face had lost all resemblance to anything human. There were no papers in the pockets, but the description answered to that of the colonel. Madame Sparmiento arrived at Ville d'Avray by motor car at seven o'clock in the evening. She was taken to a room at the railway station. When the sheet that covered it was removed, Edith, Edith Swanneck, recognized her husband's body. In these circumstances, Lupin did not receive his usual good notices in the press. Let him look to himself, jeered one letter writer, summing up the general opinion. It would not take many exploits of this kind for him to forfeit the popularity which has not been grudged him hitherto. We have no use for Lupin, except when his rogueries are perpetrated at the expense of shady company promoters, foreign adventurers, German barons, banks, and financial companies. And above all, no murders. A burglar we can put up with, but a murderer, no. If he is not directly guilty, he is at least responsible for this death. There is blood upon his hands. The public anger and disgust were increased by the pity which Edith's pale face aroused. The guests of the night before gave their version of what had happened, omitting none of the impressive details, and a legend formed straightaway around the fair-haired Englishwoman, a legend that assumed a real tragic character owing to the popular story of the swan-necked heroine. And yet, the public could not withhold its admiration of the extraordinary skill with which the theft had been effected. The police explained it, after a fashion. The detectives had noticed from the first, and subsequently stated, that one of the three windows of the gallery was wide open. There could be no doubt that Lupin and his confederates had entered through this window. It seemed a very plausible suggestion. Still, in that case, how were they able, first, to climb the garden railings, in coming and going, without being seen? Secondly, to cross the garden and put up a ladder on the flower border, without leaving the least trace behind? Thirdly, to open the shutters and the windows without starting the bells and switching on the lights in the house. Police accused the three detectives of complicity. The magistrate in charge of the case examined them at length, made minute inquiries into their private lives, and stated formally that they were above all suspicion. As for the tapestries, there seemed to be no hope that they would be recovered. It was at this moment that Chief Inspector Ganimar returned from India, where he had been hunting for Lupin on the strength of a number of most convincing proofs supplied by former confederates of Lupin himself. Feeling that he had once more been tricked by his everlasting adversary, fully believing that Lupin had dispatched him on this wild goose chase so as to be rid of him during the business of the tapestries, he asked for a fortnight's leave of absence, called on Madame Sparmiento, and promised to avenge her husband. Edith had reached the point at which not even the thought of vengeance relieves the sufferer's pain. She had dismissed the three detectives on the day of the funeral, and engaged just one man and an old cook housekeeper to take the place of the large staff of servants, the sight of whom reminded her too cruelly of the past. Not caring what happened, she kept her room and left Ganimar free to act as he pleased. He took up his quarters on the ground floor and at once instituted a series of the most minute investigations. He started the inquiry afresh, questioned the people in the neighborhood, studied the distributions of the rooms, and set each of the burglar alarms going thirty and forty times over. At the end of the fortnight, he asked for an extension of leave. 
the chief of the detective service, who was at that time Monsieur Dudouy, came to see him and found him perched on the top of a ladder in the gallery. That day, the chief inspector admitted that all his searches had proved useless. Two days later, however, Monsieur Dudouy called again and discovered Ganimard in a very thoughtful frame of mind. A bundle of newspapers lay spread in front of him. At last, in reply to his superior's urgent questions, the chief inspector muttered, I know nothing, Chief. Absolutely nothing. There's a confounded notion worrying me. Only it seems so absurd. And then it doesn't explain things. It fuses them. Then... Then I implore you, Chief, to have a little patience. To let me go my own way. But if I telephone to you, some day or other, suddenly you must jump into a taxi without losing a minute. It will mean that I have discovered the secret. Forty-eight hours passed. Then, one morning, Monsieur Dudouy received a telegram. Going to Lille. Ganimard. Dickens, can you want to go to Lille for? The day passed without news, followed by another day. But Monsieur Dudouy had every confidence in Ganimard. He knew his man, knew that the old detective was not one of those people who excite themselves for nothing. When Ganimard got a move on him, it meant that he had sound reasons for doing so. As a matter of fact, on the evening of that second day, Monsieur Dudouy was called to the telephone. You, chief. Is it Ganimard speaking? Cautious men both, they began by making sure of each other's identity. As soon as his mind was eased on this point, Ganimard continued hurriedly. Ten men, chief, at once. And please come yourself. Where are you? In the house, on the ground floor. But I will wait for you just inside the garden gate. I'll come at once. In a taxi, of course. Yes, chief. Stop the taxi fifty yards from the house. I'll let you in when you whistle. Things took place as Ganimard had arranged. Shortly after midnight, when all the lights were out on the upper floors, he slipped into the street and went to meet Monsieur Dudouy. There was a hurried consultation. The officers distributed themselves as Ganimard ordered. Then the chief and the chief inspector walked back together, noiselessly crossed the garden, and closeted themselves with every precaution. What's it all about? asked Monsieur Dudouy. What does all this mean? Upon my word, we look like conspirators. But Ganimard was not laughing. His chief had never seen him in such a state of perturbation, nor heard him speak in a voice denoting such excitement. Any news, Ganimard? Yes, chief. And this time... But I can hardly believe it myself. And yet I'm not mistaken. I know the real truth. It may be as unlikely as you please, but it is the truth. The whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He wiped away the drops of perspiration that trickled down his forehead, and, after a further question from Monsieur Dudouy, pulled himself together, swallowed a glass of water, and began. Lupin has often gotten the better of me. Now, look here, Ganimard, said Monsieur Dudouy, interrupting him. Why can't you come straight to the point? Tell me, in two words, what's happened. No, chief, retorted the chief inspector. It is essential that you should know the different stages which I have passed through. Excuse me, but I consider it indispensable. He repeated, I was saying, Chief, that Lupin has often got the better of me and led me many a dance. But in this contest, in which I have always come out worst, so far, I have at least gained experience of his manner of play and learnt to know his tactics. Now, in the matter of the tapestries, 
it occurred to me almost from the start to set myself two problems. In the first place, Lupin, who never makes a move without knowing what he's after, was obviously aware that Colonel Sparmiento had come to the end of his money and that the loss of the tapestries might drive him to suicide. Nevertheless, Lupin, who hates the very thought of bloodshed, stole the tapestries. There was the inducement, said Monsieur Dudouis, of the five or six hundred thousand francs which they were worth. No, chief, I tell you once more, whatever the occasion might be, Lupin would not take life, nor be the cause of another person's death for anything in this world, for millions and millions. That's the first point. In the second place, what was the object of all that disturbance in the evening during the housewarming party? Obviously, don't you think, to surround the business with an atmosphere of anxiety and terror in the shortest possible time, and also to divert suspicion from the truth, which, otherwise, might easily have been suspected. You seem not to understand, Chief. Upon my word, I do not. As a matter of fact, said Ganimar, as a matter of fact, it is not particularly plain, and I myself, when I put the problem before my mind in those same words, did not understand it very clearly, and yet I felt that I was on the right track. Yes, there was no doubt about it that Lupin wanted to divert suspicion, to divert them to himself, Lupin, mark you, so that the real person who was working the business might remain unknown. Confederate, suggested Monsieur Dudouis. Confederate, moving among the visitors, who set the alarms going, and who managed to hide in the house after the party had broken up. You're getting warm, chief. You're getting warm. It is certain that the tapestries, as they cannot have been stolen by anyone making his way surreptitiously into the house, were stolen by someone who remained in the house. And it is equally certain that, by taking the list of the people invited and inquiring into the antecedents of each of them, one might... Well, chief, there's a but. Namely, that the three detectives had this list in their hands when the guests arrived, and they still had it when the guests left. Now, 63 came in, and 63 went away, so you see... And do you suspect a servant? No. The detectives? No. Still. But still, said the chief impatiently, if the robbery was committed from the inside... That is beyond dispute, declared the inspector, whose excitement seemed to be nearing fever point. There's no question about it. All my investigations led to the same certainty, and my conviction gradually became so positive that I ended one day by drawing up this startling axiom. In theory, and in fact... The robbery can only have been committed with the assistance of an accomplice staying in the house, whereas there was no accomplice. That's absurd, said Dudouis. Quite absurd, Ganimar. But at the very moment when I uttered that absurd sentence, the truth flashed upon me. Eh? Oh, very dim, very incomplete, but still sufficient truth. With that clue to guide me, I was bound to find the way. You follow me, chief. Mr. Dudouis sat silent. The same phenomenon that had taken place in Ganimar was evidently taking place in him. He muttered, Guests, nor the servants, nor the private detectives. Yes, Chief, there's one left. <laughs>